Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, third quarter GDP came in on Friday. What did it tell us about the economy and what is really going on with the economy? What is happening? What isn't happening? What can you expect out of this election? What can you expect in 2017? Joe Brusuelis is an economist. He is here for a wide-ranging discussion on the economy. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steve here in the studio. And uh, with us today in on the phone, Chuck Jaffe from Market Watch. Chuck, how you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me back. And also here in the studio, we have Joe Brusuelis, who is the chief economist at RSM. Joe, how are you? I'm doing so good. If I was doing any better, you might have to clone me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joe and I go back a, a ways, although we've never had you on the podcast. So I'm glad to have finally get you on the podcast. Yeah, everything but, so I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. And uh, the reason we have a, a chief economist on the podcast today is because this morning, folks, Friday morning, in case you missed it, Third quarter U.S. gross domestic product was released at 8.30 a.m., and it came in better than expected. 2.9? 2.9% growth raised annualized uh, third quarter over the second quarter, higher than expectations. Everything looks great. Everything looks... Everything's fine, right, Paul? No, I mean, I mean, you're no, you're really. you're for once in the last seven years, your cup's half full, right? My cup's always half full. It's just <laughs> full. Of, it's just half full of strychnine. Uh, so the number comes in higher than expected, and and let's go to you first, Joe. Why don't you tell us? Uh, I don't know. You want to start with what was good about it? All right. Well, the what was good about it was we finally saw a recovery in inventory building. Um, we saw a one-time increase in trade, largely organized around the exports of sorghum. Yeah. And losses of imports having to do with which the is Korean a tragically strike. underrated did, yeah. grain. Yes. People yes. don't understand just how important sorghum right. is in this in this world. <laughs> um, <laughs> consumer spending did, did uh, decelerate to a more sustainable yeah. 2.1%, largely um, caused by a jump in outlays on durables, I suspect having to do with automobiles. Um, but we did continue to see a slide in capital expenditures, um, which which is somewhat troubling. This is five out of the last six quarters here mm-hmm. where we've seen a slide in, in output outlays on equipment. Pick up on intellectual capital, that's that's good. Um Non-residential investment, very strong. But residential investment continuing to be a little bit weak and disappointing this year. And I think what we're seeing is some late business cycle dynamics. Now, once you dig underneath the the data, here's what I think we're really seeing is not necessarily a strong rebound that's likely to be sustainable. But what you're seeing is gross domestic uh, purchases increased by 2%. Does that sound familiar, gentlemen? Because we're two percent, two percent, yeah, two yeah, percent. Yeah. Uh, final sales to domestic purchasers increased by one point four percent, and final sales to domestic purchasers increased by one point six percent. So when you take that together with the growth on year over year, which was only up one point three percent, what you're looking at is a long term growth rate trend in the United States economy sitting roughly at one point five percent, which is just below the Fed's estimate of one point eight, but dramatically down from the three point three percent we saw just before the crisis began. So what we have here is we have a very different dynamic in our economy, basically what I would call secular stagflation. Slow growth, low inflation, low rates, with not really any relief um, on the horizon. I think when you take a step back and you look at this, given the fact that we are just a few days away from an election, this data screams out for comprehensive tax reform. 
and productivity enhancing infrastructure spending over a very long period of time. Because right now we have a significant productivity problem. Productivity's up one half a percent on a year ago basis, as opposed to say 2.3%, which was more or less the range between two point, uh, 1945 and 2005. And the supply of labor into the market slowed exceptionally. Mm-hmm. It's one half of 1% in contrast with the 1% we've historically come up with. So when you take a look at that, you know, one half here, one half there, what do you got? You got a 1% economy. And that, that's a real policy challenge. And it's unfortunate that we're not talking about that. Yeah. But, but doesn't it also suggest that this economy can muddle along, completely unspectacular, but just kind of, you know, slowly stumbling its way forward, which may not be enough for everybody to be satisfied, but is a heck of a lot better than watching us fall into some sort of recession? Well, that's, that's, that's definitely the case, that uh, we can stumble in. But, Chuck, when you're growing between 1% and 1.5%, you have an r- economy that's more vulnerable to both domestic and external shocks, meaning the probability of recessions are higher and the economic expansion cycles following whenever this business cycle ends are likely to be shorter. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's something, too. So I've heard people say that, you know, look, the economy is either growing or it's shrinking, and the, the idea that you can just kind of muddle along forever is it, you can't do it. Like, if the economy is getting weaker, the economy is getting weaker. You know, it, it kind of builds up its own internal momentum one way or the other. I'm not an expert in these matters, so I'm not predicting. You know, I'm just saying uh, to play devil's advocate there, I, I don't know. Can you Can you just muddle along? Well, it's also like you have to take into account the massive amount of debt we have when you're talking about muddling a growth rate under 2%. Yeah, how do you muddle when you've got that much, when you're well, under such debt? The debt right now is not a true drag on overall yeah. growth. We haven't reached that point yet. We may or we may not. I think the, the important point here is just that business cycles don't last forever. Yeah. So here, let's take a step back and think about the likely policy landscape going forward just from the central bank, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've got a, if you've got a long-term growth trend rate of 1.5%, your long-term real neutral interest rate is likely closer to zero. When I was a younger man in this business, it was considered to be 4%. So under those conditions, the long-term neutral rate, or what we call R-starred, right? Under those conditions, the Fed really can't normalize rates along expectations that everybody's grown accustomed to, meaning, yeah, they'll, they'll do 25 in December. They say they'll do 75 bips next year. 50 looks about right. They can't get much above 1%, 1.25% without risking tipping the economy into recession, right? So, okay, that's fine. But when you take a look at that, well, let's think about the impact of low yields and how they distort markets, the impact of low and real negative yields and how they impact the business models of banks, health insurance firms, specifically life and health, health insurance firms, and then, of course, the pension fund liabilities are all sitting out there, right? So what that screams for, again, more reform. We've got to stop not just issuing – well, we not only we have to continue issuing 30-year debt. We should, conti- we should strongly consider issuing 50-year debt to allow the business models of those in the banks, the insurance firms, and pension funds to actually adjust their business models for the longer term. Yeah, but didn't 50-year and 100-year debts and you know 50- and 100-year mortgages contribute to why Japan wound up – falling off the cliff and then staying so deeply in the trough for so long? Well, what happened in Japan specifically was was that <clears throat> the distortive allocations of low rates caused insurance companies to take on exceptionally large quantities of risk by buying equities in the Japanese market. So when the 
correction came, seven of the eight Japanese insurance companies failed, and they were forced to issue 50-year debt. Second, the, the, Japan, the Japanese have a very different economy from us, and they have very different demographics. Their demographics are such that the population is shrinking. Ours is growing more over eight to ten years out. We're going to get a surge in demography that's going to help productivity, and we're going to change the, the, the nature of the labor supply coming in the market. We'll probably move back towards 1%. Well, um, but that's you, a long time to wait. That that does argue for ten and two decades of lost. And, and if you started to see, I mean, and there was a move back 10, 15 years ago to say, hey, let's start to create 40-year mortgages and 50-year mortgages. And thank goodness that didn't wind up taking root before the financial crisis of 2008. I mean, it totally changes the risk profile when you say, hey, I can buy a house that I don't intend to live in for the rest of my life because, well, I'm going to mortgage it for over the period you know, beyond what I expect to live for. So if you wind up putting it into one place in the thinking, doesn't it become something that everybody looks at and that has its own effect? Right? Okay, well, these, aren't mutually, these are not mutually exclusive properties. Simply because the federal government issues 50-year debt, does, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be 50-year mortgage, nor should there, should be, nor should there be, right? You know, it's, it's a unique situation where the United States is one of the only countries in the world that has a 30-year mortgage. Right, that's very uncommon across the rest of the world. So simply because we moved into this new and very different economy that requires different policies, both fiscally and monetarily, does that not necessarily mean that? Well, simply because we're issuing fifty-year debt, we're getting fifty-year mortgages. But Joe, that's that hasn't played out. I mean, I, I buy that and I agree with it up to a point. But if that was the case, we wouldn't be selling alternative investments to average investors. We wouldn't be saying, hey, here's a hedge fund strategy that has no business in Joe Average's portfolio, but we're humping that product for Joe Average because that's what our business community does. If it's good for everybody else, well, why would I want to not be able to get what the pros can get? If they can look at 50-year debt, so can I. If they can use it in one place, why can't the next? You're right. There's not a necessary connection. But to assume that it's not going to happen goes pretty much against everything in history, in the horrible history of the financial services industry. Uh, okay, before we go any further, let's take a quick break because we have an important message for our uh, valued listeners. And we will come back right on the other side of it. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington and on the campaign trail. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Bee Podcast. We are happy to be with you, always happy to be with you. And look, if you enjoy this program and you want other great WSJ products, uh, other podcasts, you can find us at wsj.com slash podcasts. We have Your Money Matters, the free-for-all, WSJ Opinion, Heard on the Street, plenty for you out there. We are on Twitter. We're at WSJ Podcasts. And if you want to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and your Google Play Music app. 
And we're here, uh, Paul, Stephen, Chuck Jaffe, and Joe Brusuelis. And Chuck, I, I always uh, forget where to send people to get your podcast. Well, they can, they you can find Money Life with Chuck Jaffe at all of those same basic places at iTunes and every place else. And we're on Twitter at Money Life Show, and it's MoneyLifeShow.com for an hour of daily radio content. There you go. So really, I don't, I don't know why you would need anything else. I don't know why you'd need anything else. No. There's no, no, no other podcast This in is the your world. weekend, right? My weekend? You're just listening to all these podcasts. All right. This is your whole weekend. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah this is whole, your whole weekend. And it, it is worth the time. It is worth the price of admission, which is nothing. Uh, talking <laughs> about GDP, talking about growth rates, talking about long-term trends for the economy and for your investments as well. And, you know, it's interesting. You're talking about, um, Joe, in the, the last segment, we got you guys, we, we got into this thing about the fact that the Fed doesn't really can't raise rates very much. And I think it's interesting. You, know, you talk about a, a world where the Fed really can't raise the, the short-term Fed funds rate much above 1%. That is extraordinary because before the crisis, before the housing bubble, when Greenspan took rates down to 1%, that had never been done before. And people thought that that was just, you know, that was that was insane. It was unprecedented. How can he go down to one? Now we're in a world where you can't go up to one. Uh, how how through the looking glass are we here? Oh, we're well through the looking glass. We are actually at the point where when I was in my doctoral program, things we talked about as theoretical but non-practical were actually implementing this idea <laughs> of negative rates, yeah. right? Yeah. This idea of like actually applying a tax to all firms that hold cash or in the case of Japan, all firms and households that hold cash, right? I mean, gentlemen, what's right. the number one product in demand in Japan these days? Safes. Right. And when, when I go around the country and I talk about this and I, I'm always stopping, I talk about Europe because people ask a lot of questions about the European economy. And I say, look, they've got a negative yield policy over there. Mm -hmm. And when you see a large insurance reinsurance firm like Munich Re, which made a, a conscious, rational decision to take 10 billion euros and stick it in the side of a Swiss mountain and they would rather pay the, the security and storage costs than the tax. That tells you right there, Paul. That's an operational definition. We are way through the looking glass. Yeah, and you know, you guys mentioned also. It's, you started getting into talk about pensions. I think it's interesting. I think there there is going to be a big reckoning yeah. in this world about what these policies have done to pensions. I, I, Caterpillar this week reported their earnings, and they said just just an accounting change to what they have to do to their pension plans. They may report a loss for the full year. First time since 1992 that they would report a loss for the year, and it's on the pensions. Well, I mean, it speaks to the bigger question of, especially with, like, negative rates. How long, I mean, can you go with negative rates given how much, you know, the financial system has been predicated on other sort of, you know, conditions? I mean, you no one, you know, you mentioned this before. I mean, insurers, uh, pension mm -hmm. funds, banks. I mean, you know, these, these, these industries are just getting whacked by... Well, policies. one would think that they're probably closer to the end than they are to yeah. the beginning in Japan. However, in Europe, they've got a different view of this. They've had what they would consider to be mixed success. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. So even though they're likely, I think, in, in December or March to announce a tapering of their version of asset purchases, I think negative rates are going to be around for a while simply because the ECB is just in so stark disagreement with the austere fiscal policies that have unleashed the deflationary uh, monster in Europe that they just see that they have to, that this is the only way that they can fight this. So we're likely to see the actual 
real implications on interest rates across the world and capital flows. Yes, I know capital's been flowing back into Europe for a, a few months, but that will reverse. It's going to come back here. Yeah, especially if the dollar weakens. Well, like I mean, they, it's not so much the dollar weakening as once Draghi disappoints on okay. the pace of tapering. Right now, that's just a bet on tapering. Yeah. Once that plays out, then it's going to reverse, and uh, we're going to see the dollar Ch- appreciate. Chuck wanted to jump in. Chuck, yeah. what were you going to say? I, I got a question recently from, from Al in Ontario, one of my listeners, who asked a great question, and, and it kind of, this whole discussion brings it, which is, you know, we always talk about what the Fed can and can't do. Could the Fed say, hey, let's, let's try a real interim step, and instead of moving a quarter point, let's move an eighth of a point. You know, let's, let's move hmm. an eighth of a point and see. Could, why do we have to do this the way we've always done this if we're sort of sitting here acknowledging that what we've always done isn't necessarily working? Is there anything that stops the Fed from None, trying no, something nothing, different like that? Nothing whatsoever other than institutional inertia. Yeah. No, let's let's give the Fed some credit here. They've been, I would say, extraordinarily creative in the response to this entire disaster, right? They've attempted to avoid the mistakes that were made during the Depression in the 1930s, which was we have to go back to a gold standard immediately, or we have to hold to a gold standard, we hold to it too long, then we break it, things go good, well, let's go back to it. That was, in, in retrospect, the entirely wrong policy framework to, to use. So you know what? If, if, things, if there is an external shock... Or if the economy doesn't respond positively or responds in an unusually negative way to modest tax hikes in 2018, sure, they definitely could go that way, and I wouldn't rule it out. Hmm. I'd love to see it. I'm like, hey, let's go ahead and try to be that creative, although I suspect that they'd get killed for doing it because, well, you're not being strong enough by going the full quarter point or what happened. Well, you know what they'd have? To, I think if again it all comes down to with this with this group it's the communication right I mean if they communicated it well in advance laid out the rationale for it made it seem like you know in my opinion people want to believe the Fed mm-hmm. when they say, I mean you have a lot of Fed critics out there and Fed doubters uh, but people want to believe the Fed they people want to know that or at least think that there's somebody out there that knows what's going on. And if they communicated that kind of a policy, Chuck, and if, if they made it seem like it's the rational thing, people would go along with it. And really, I love it because nobody's talked about it, and I think you'd get a chance to say, okay, you know, does a rate hike actually crack the market? Does the market dramatically overreact, or could you stair-step it up in a little bit slower fashion and maybe spoon-feed the market what it needs to have happen? Chuck's got a very good point here, and this is, this is really important takeaway that. It's more sexy to talk about integrating fiscal and monetary policy and the Fed financing tax cuts. Or, wow, or did spending. you really just say that that's, that's sexy? I did. <laughs> I'm, I'm an economist, and that's how that rolls in my yeah. house. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that th- those are extreme responses that should only be undertaken if there's a significant financial breakdown in Europe or there's a significant problem in, in the People's Republic of China. What would be more prudent is to consider these these smaller steps mm. in order to further shape expectations both on growth and inflation. Well, and let me ask you guys, uh, Chuck and Joe, I want to get both your takes on this because you serve different constituencies, but you have to address these issues. Uh, Joe, your firm, RSM, you are a consultancy to, to the middle market, right, mid-sized right. companies. Chuck, you're a personal finance column, columnist. Uh, 
you look at the world that we're in, that we've been talking about right now, right? Low growth, uh, you know, low returns, issues with the pensions because of that. Stocks have been doing well. You, Yes, there's an election coming up. And yes, both candidates have talked about doing some kind of stimulus. See what actually happens. But I mean, apart from anything big coming along that actually changes that picture and makes it much, much brighter. What are you telling? But I want to know this for both of you guys. Like, what are you telling people to do the rest of this year, next year, going future? You know, what do you guys think about that? And Chuck, if you want to go first, you you know. Okay. Well, I mean, look, I I talk to experts, and my my you know my guests and the people I chat with are the true experts here. But the message that I'm getting from all of them that I'm passing along is, you know, rebalance. Be you don't want to be overly defensive. Uh, you can find folks who are saying, oh, things are going to fall off a table. But if that's your nature, if if you sort of take the Paul Vini approach, hey, something really <laughs> bad is happening. Wait, well, wait, wait that's know, not my approach. That's not, I just I just respond to reality. I'm a realist, Chuck. I'm not. Well, I'm I, not a. I might be a little bit of a doomsayer. The, well, uh, the, the issue is that the realists have priced up everything that's defensive, and you don't necessarily want to be in a situation where you're chasing after the defensive options at a time where, oh, by the way, they may not protect you that much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sadly, it's the old songs. It's the things that are hard to do. It's the take some of your money off the table, rebalance your portfolio, because a lot of people haven't done it for a long time. And the wrong time to rebalance your portfolio is after you go, wow, I had a lot of winnings, and now I have a lot less. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of basics that, are really easy to talk about and really difficult to do. Okay, so in in my world, right? So I'm in, I'm fully embedded in the real economy. Okay, our clients, the middle market, they derive those are companies that derive revenues between ten million and two billion a year. There's two hundred thousand of those type of firms in the United States. They account for forty percent of GDP and employ one third of the entire labor base. Over one half of that two hundred thousand are RSM clients. So these are the people I talk to and live and breathe. They're thinking longer term, 5, 10, 20 years out, right? Their problems shorter term are such that they're primarily more worried about being able to get qualified employees to fill the positions they have. They're worried about getting employees who can pass pre- pre-employment drug screening con- tests, which is a really big problem these days, especially in the manufacturing sector oh. in the upper Midwest. It's a significant issue that's going to require a legislative response. Um, they actually are warming to this idea of lower interest rates for a long period of time. It makes access to capital easier. Moreover, while they don't communicate it, the way in which they discuss it is such that I think I understand what they mean. What they're saying is financial repression doesn't bother us. In fact, the less capital that goes into risky um, speculative bets in capital markets suits us because that means capital is being reallocated towards the real economy where we can make longer-term investments, which is, by not coincidence, the whole point of financial repression, is to sit on financial innovation, sit on unnecessary risk-taking, and over time you get a reallocation of investors via private equity, VC, and through mergers and acquisitions towards the real economy. Thus, your economy is put on a more sustainable basis, and you de-emphasize the importance of finance. Now, I know that's not popular to hear in the, in the cap- money capital of the United States or over in London, right? But that's what's going on on both sides of the Atlantic now. And so in many ways, our our clients are okay. Our middle market business index communicates to us that, 
yeah, growth may have slowed, and you can see that below the headline here. But the middle market's actually outperforming the bigger Fortune 500, right? Um, we're hiring. We're trying to control wage growth because wage growth is beginning to be an issue, and that's going to mm-hmm. cause earnings to compress. Um, earnings are going to be okay, but they're not going to be what we want. What we're really worried about is are we investing enough in our business? And here's where the rubber hits the road for where we're at right now um, in late October. The election has scared the you-know-what of our clients. And they signal that they're likely to pull back on CapEx. And that's one of those canaries in the coal mine late in the business cycle. Hopefully, once the outcome of the election is settled, we get a release of pent-up demand, both from the middle market and Fortune 500 companies, both of which have pulled back mm-hmm. on CapEx. And that's one of the real, real reasons apart from slow corporate earnings, well, the economy is just slow to a crawl. No, we, I mean, we've been talking about yeah, poor yeah. business investment for yeah. you know, months now. Why do you think the election has had such a profound uh, impact and the uncertainty around that on okay. you know, the, your clients, I mean, like in the middle market? The uncertainty regarding the fact that we have two candidates of what our clients would consider big government. It's the first time in anybody's memory that we haven't at least had an advocate, a smaller government and lower taxes. They're just simply not buying the Trump line or what we may call the Larry Kudlow discourse. <laughs> it's, it's just not resonating. And for, for our clients, they're thinking, well, wait a second. I've operated this business. My father's operated this business or my mother's operated this business. And the entire time, there's at least been a policy since the 80s that favored business. But it appears now that we're moving into a different political economy where the onus is going to be on business, right? It's not going to be, the policy is not going to be in support of business. Now, that may or may not be the case, but that's the way they're expressing it. And let me, let me tell you guys, I've been doing this job a long time, and not once did I ever get a question about an election before June of election year. And last year in October, mm-hmm. I started to get pointed, serious, intense questions. And October bled into November bled into December, and by January of this year, when I spent 21 of 31 days on the road going all over this continent talking about the domestic and global economy, by the end of January, that whisper had turned into a scream. And I've not once ever seen this in my career. And that just tells you just just how uncertainty can impact an economy. And hey, and if you're thinking about Brexit out there, our, our friends who are listeners and people who tune in who are in the U.K., They've got two years of uncertainty minimum in front of them. Right. Yeah. And that's a very powerful source of an, uh, in terms of how business decisions or lack thereof can cause an economy to slow well below trend. How much of this is also like speaks to the bigger trend, the trend of populism that you know, is around the world and is playing out in this election? I mean, you have both, both parties you know, in the primaries – move to, you know, the populist side. And, you know, arguably Trump played to the populist side in the Republican Party. More than and, arguably. Oh, you know, did. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, you have Hillary who was forced by, you know, you know Sanders to move right, to that right. side as well. Um, how much of that is just the sort of the period we're in of populism that's sort of risen up, you know, seven years after the, the financial crisis? Well, it's enormous. Yeah. Let's face it. You know, if you've got 100,000 clients in the U.S. economy, you've got a global clientele. Yeah, yeah. Right? So let's just take the Trade Pacific Partnership, for example. Okay. Embedded in the TPP is a real interesting trade innovation that wasn't around during NAFTA and the WTO. Section 24 of the TPP actually embedded in it is a, is a portion that favors small and medium enterprises that, that will allow them to participate 
in global trade and then has oversight and implementation to ensure that they're not getting pushed out of the process. The first innovation occurred in 2012 with the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Pact. So one of our favorite um, points of analysis here is within three years of that passing, the exports of food, tobacco, and beverages by middle market firms increased by 25.2%. You mean ours exporting overseas? Yeah, that's right, into a formerly closed market that has insatiable demand Mm -hmm. for those products simply because the tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers were eliminated. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for our clients, for small and medium enterprises, which, by the way, are 95% of all businesses in this economy, to actually get additional sources to growth. This is what you should do after the Great Recession and a depressionary-type shock, right? You know, it's, it's unfortunate that we're having this false conversation right now about trade and manufacturing job losses. Let's be blunt about this. 85% 85% of the job losses have to do with changes in technology, competitive and comparative advantages. They have nothing to do with trade. 15% hmm. of those losses, they're directly attributable to trade. Many of it had to do with China. The time to do something about that was 1994 to 2005, where we could have attacked the tariff and non-tariff barriers and put you know, sanctions on China. We could have taken more progressive steps to really press them the way Reagan did Japan in the 1980s, right? we got a Chinese government, a Chinese economy that's now deindustrializing, a Chinese economy that's just embarked on a seven to 10 year period of debt and deleveraging, a Chinese banking system that the Bank of International Settlements has told them they got three years on the, three years on the clock until they're going to have a major crisis. Yet we have at least one major candidate who spooked the commercial sector by declaring if he's elected, he's going to start a trade and currency war with an economy that's actually deindustrializing and is actually decelerating at an advanced rate. This is not an optimal approach to managing an economy well, or the process of globalization. I, I, you know, and it doesn't also in, speak to like, technology and where that's going. Well, that's right. And we should AI have – and this is and another podcast yeah. when we want to talk about technological unemployment and what we're going to have to do. Yeah. Because that's, that, that's the that, actual that, thing we yeah. should be looking at. Exactly. That's, that's the discussion we need to have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that actually should be the next podcast. <laughs> I would love that. That's actually uh, a, a pet the topic of mine. That really? I love. Yeah, I love that topic. I would love to come back and well, talk yeah, to you about artificial intelligence and the adoption or integration of Amazon Echo's Alexa into my household and how it's driven down my energy output and outlays. It's amazing. Wow. Just by turning the energy grid over to my house to the AI project product has re- re- resulted in a significant increase in extra personal disposable income in my budget. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got to come back and talk about yeah. this. What's happening Alexa. out there? Alexa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You buy simple light bulbs with RFID chips. Yeah. You can put the whole thing on voice command. You can set it up so that if you walk out a hundred hundred feet from your front door, the whole thing shuts down. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we should definitely um, do that. Yeah, we should we should leave it there. Then, I, 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 guess, I have, I have one question, just just more about the presidential election, because there was our, our Washington bureau chief had a, a you know a column earlier this week, and he had a great stat, and I'm going to try to pull it up here. No, and, and you know, also, folks, if you're listening out there and, and you're starting to see red in your eyes, you know, understand that, like Joe's not really talking about this from a partisan point no, of view right at all. I mean, this, this is purely he really is looking at this from the economics of it. So. It's interesting that you make that statement. It seems to be against one side in, right. in the election, but you're really looking at this from the economics of it, not from the, the partisan 
No, and the fact that Hillary gave up a long-held position just for political reasons to fend off the challenge from Bernie is also equally damning. She should have been the one standing up for this and saying, hey, this is the discussion we need to have and where we need to go. So I don't have a lot of confidence right now on either side in terms of managing the dynamics of technological change, trade, and the global economy. Well, I mean, his column basically just, he he leads off with a stat that basically there's a $6 trillion difference in the amount of federal revenue that will be generated over the next, let's see, decade from taxes between the two plans. But the more point is, like, why aren't we discussing and why haven't we gotten into a serious discussion of the policies of these two candidates, which, you know, you know, like, so, like, neither one will really have a mandate when they come into office because it's not like they're necessarily – we're not choosing based on, you know, their policies and what they're putting forth. Well, I think it's the the fact that we've had a coarsening of our culture and our politics that for the past 15 years – both sides have been stuck in their own ideological cul-de-sacs. And the fact that the rise of radical populism yeah. and, the, to be blunt, the alt-right and the fact that approximately 20% of the population has been left behind mm. has made it difficult for the political establishment to find a center to talk about this in a rational way that doesn't incite the, and inflame the passions of the public at this time. So what's happened is that there is no center. The center hasn't hold. It's collapsed. The Republican Party's fractured in the three factions. The Democratic Party would have, but the risks of Trump have caused it to, to sort of paper over it. They're going to fraction too. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, in my, my, my opinion, what we're seeing is the sort of the last echo of the old dying order. And the frightening thing is we don't know what will be born in its aftermath and how the political coalitions will change and where the, the equilibrium will be. And so that's why I, I, complete, I consistently come back to this idea of uncertainty. Uncertainty inhibits growth. Inhibits investment, yeah. inhibits inhibits saving, and unless you can identify the properly proper policy framework to identify these problems, we're going to be stuck with secular stagflation for for a good period of time. Yeah, I was at a. Um, I know we got to wrap this up, but this just popped in my head. I was at a conference a year or so ago. Uh, Cory Booker, New Jersey senator, was there, and I, he just made, he made one comment. I remember him saying it was about technology. And I remember him saying, you know, people don't know what the Democratic or Republican view of technology is because there isn't one. There isn't one. <laughs> and it's 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 scary. You don't you you can't have the entire political class of Washington DC not understanding technology yeah. in 2016, especially because the the economies of life sciences um and tech are completely different from the rest of the economy. Yeah. They run on a completely different internal logic. They're likely to thrive. And if you don't believe that, go to Boston. Go to the South End. Remember the combat zone where your right. mom said, don't ever go there? That's an amazing place. It's the equal of Central Are you from Park Boston? West. No, I'm from Southern California, but I used to go to Boston a lot. Yeah, I mean, I can vouch for it. Yeah, Chuck is up there. That's right, no, Chuck, you're up no, there. No, I mean, because I, I, I grew up in Boston starting in the 70s. I, mean, it, like, <laughs> I know exactly the, what you're talking the, about. The, the old industrial wharf yeah, yeah. that I thought was a permanent eyesore, like this is just going to be a dead, a dead weight on the – the Commonwealth of Boston and Massachusetts? No, not anymore. No. That's the place to be in Boston. It's I, just amazing. I mean, I, do, I don't get out. My parents still live outside of Boston. I don't get up to Boston very often. But my, my friend, um, you know, was getting married there. So we went up and he was getting married in, you know, the South End. And I just from, you know, like walking through that area that night 
was such a dramatic difference from like you know the seventies and eighties than right. it, hmm. you know today, and it was such a different and more vibrant city than it was and when I was living there. That wow. economic model spun out of MIT, Harvard, yeah. and the archipelago of liberal arts colleges has created a dynamic economy all organized around life sciences and finance that's altogether distinct and different from everywhere else. And let me tell you, and this is coming from someone who's just not occupied with trading equities. I'm not worried about whether the 10-year ticks up one tick or down. It, it doesn't matter to me anymore. It used to, but it doesn't, right? Because we got 5, 10, or 20-year time horizons. At RSM, we can't hire quick enough in Boston, in Seattle, in Northern California, in San Diego, in Denver, where the dynamic portions of the economy are altogether distinct and different from the rest. And Paul, you hit it right on the mark. Why are we not having discussions about this? How can Washington right. and policymakers not understand technology and the way in which the life science is going to alter not only how we live, but how we produce, save, and invest? Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of it centers around, too, and it's a point you made early in the podcast, education. I mean, like, you know, Boston has a highly educated workforce from all the universities there. And same with Northern California. Yeah, yeah we should come on and talk about uh, state and local development yeah. now. It's all about the universities and consortiums between them now. Yeah. Okay, so we have our next four podcasts uh, <laughs> lined up here, I think. There you go. So, Joe, we'll have to uh, – next time your schedule allows for it, we'll have to get you back in. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on with you guys. Yeah, I listen, no. I listen great. to your guys' podcast when I am on the airplane on Spotify. <laughs> really? I do. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you know, thank, thanks for coming on. Uh, we went – we've come a far distance from the GDP report, but uh, I think this was a – I think this was a good one. Yeah. 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 And uh, everyone, thank you for listening. We will talk to you very soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.